Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, what a day. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is uh, testifying before Congress right now. You know, sadly, it's relatively predictable, you know, what Republicans are going to be saying. And, and, well, I have some thoughts about that. We'll be getting into that in just a minute. A lot coming up on the program today. I want to start out with talking about how the middle class should be a dream and not a nightmare. It has devolved into a nightmare. It appears for many Americans over the past 40 years. I'll talk about that in just a moment. And uh, Judge Jackson. Also, crazy alert, dog gets dumped at shelter for being gay. What? Also, in our second hour, wealthy countries have 12 years to end oil and gas production, but none have plans to do so. We will be talking about that with a uh, guest. Also, Colorado pro-Trump groups are sending armed members door to door to intimidate voters. But I want to start out with a brief conversation about what's happening to the American middle class. There's a fascinating piece published in the Washington Post yesterday afternoon by, um, uh, by Eli Saslaw, writing for the Post about this guy, Dave Ramsey Jr. His father, Dave Ramsey Sr., no relation to the talk show host, um, died uh, at the age of 70 uh, looking at a bill, at a, at a medical bill that he couldn't afford to pay, had a heart attack. And his son, you know, was just flat out of money. I mean, you know, dad had been, he'd had a number of reasonably good jobs throughout his life, but Basically, you know, the middle class just changed or the ability to stay in the middle class changed during the last 20 or so years of his life. And he ended up deeper and deeper in debt, as did his son and his neighborhood to a large extent. And his son, Dave Jr., this is uh, the, uh, he had his father cremated and all he could afford to to pick up his dad's ashes was a cloth bag. Uh, He couldn't afford a funeral service. He couldn't afford a memorial service. He couldn't even afford an urn. 
um, is it's, it's really a remarkable story, and I, I, I highly recommend you check it out. Um, one of the things that Eli Saslow notes is that like the record, like a record 23% of Americans who have died in the past five years, the ultimate financial worth of Dave's father's life was nothing, a number somewhere below zero. And then uh, Saslow goes on to point out in the Washington Post that it's even worse than that, that uh, Dave Jr.'s family is, quote, a case study in what economists call backward mobility into the bottom 50% of Americans who now collectively have a negative net worth. A negative net worth is like worse than just being in poverty. It means that you, know, you have to climb up to zero first in order to get out of it. You, 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 there's basically no way to ever economically catch your breath or to sleep well at night without worrying. It also usually means, at least in the United States, that your children are probably also doomed to a life of grinding poverty because America is now the least socially mobile country of all the developed nations in the world as a result of Republican tax policies. And so here we are, we, we have, you know, we, we went from two thirds of Americans, when Ronald Reagan came into office, two thirds of Americans being solidly middle class. The white population of America was solidly middle class and the black and Hispanic population of America was rapidly moving into a middle class. Substantial black and Hispanic middle classes were beginning to emerge in the 60s and 70s and early 80s as a consequence in, in large part of uh, not just the New Deal programs, but in particular, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson. But now, all of us together, <laughs> black, white, Hispanic, whatever, uh, fewer than half of us are middle class. And in fact, more than 50% of all Americans own nothing. In fact, they owe rather than own. So how do we get here and how do we reverse this? The way we got here, you know, in a nutshell is Reaganomics. Ronald Reagan coming in and cutting the top tax rate on, on morbidly rich people from 74% down to 25% for one year, then it went back up to 28%. And it stayed pretty much in that neighborhood right up till now, low 30s anyway, high 20s. Cutting, the, uh, cutting roughly in half the corporate tax rate and, and going on an absolute rampage to destroy unions because unions were the principal funders of the Democratic Party and the goal of the Republican Party in the 1980s was to cut the money supply to the, to the Democratic Party, to the DNC. And they were largely successful in doing this. It's why Bill Clinton felt that the Democrats had to start embracing, quote, clean industries, you know, like banking and insurance and big pharma, big hospitals, stuff like that which was, I mean, you know, you could argue, he really had no choice. You could argue. <laughs> I, would, I would argue that actually he did have a choice and he could have gone all Bernie Sanders in, in 1992, um, uh, but chose not to. But that's, all, that's a, you know, kind of litigating 1992 is probably not the best thing to be doing right now. But the bottom line here is that Reagan flipped us into, he flipped us out of New Deal economics, which had, sustained us from 1933 right up until 1981. 
and into neoliberal Reaganomics, the trickle-down economics, which always destroys middle classes. Always. So how do we fix this? Well, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Number one, we have to get money out of politics because the problem is that the oligarchs don't want their taxes going up. You know, the, 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 the morbidly rich people in America are paying, according to the, that Politico study last year, an average of around 3% income tax. It's a hell of a lot less than you pay. I can guarantee you that <laughs> most people pay. But they're paid around 3% income tax. So, and they want to keep it that way. So that they can, you know, pour more and more money into their money bins. But, you know, so number one, get money out of politics. Reverse Citizens United. Number two, set a floor through which people can't fall with, you know, aggressive uh, federal programs to, to get homeless people off the streets and into housing to provide people with food who are food insecure, which is a shocking number of Americans. Guarantee workers the right to unionize and enforce that right vigorously. That right to unionize is something that, uh, you know, really built the American middle class. And like I said, that was the first thing Reagan went after. Um, next, provide health care at little to no cost so that no American family will ever again get wiped out by somebody getting sick or in an accident. In Canada, you know the number of people last year who declared bankruptcy because somebody in their family got sick in Canada? Zero. Germany? Zero. Sweden? Zero. France? Zero. Italy? Zero. The United States? Almost a million. I mean, you know, Dave Ramsey, the guy that this story is about in the Washington Post, he didn't declare bankruptcy, but it was medical debt that was wiping him out. So provide health care, provide higher education and trade school at little to no cost so every American, regardless of social station, can reach their full potential. This is something that every other developed country in the world right now does routinely. College is free to cheap. In, in Denmark, they pay you to go to college. In Germany, too but not here. In fact, we did the opposite here, but we did try this once. Abraham Lincoln put into place free college. He created 56 land-grant universities. He, he, he gave huge chunks of federal land, gave them to states to create universities. This is where Michigan State University came from. It's where a lot of your state colleges came from. They're called land-grant universities because Lincoln gave them the land so they could be free or low-cost colleges forever and forever lasted until the Reagan administration. So let's go back to that. Reagan, of course, also had, you know, there was free college in California for almost a century, and then Reagan came in as governor and ended that. Strengthen our public schools back to the world-class quality that we had before the Reagan administration came in and started gutting them, and ban most government money from going to parasitic private schools, particularly the all-white religious schools, or religious academies, and the for-profit charter schools. Invest in the nation's infrastructure used by the majority of families from mass transit to community-owned broadband to new public schools and public hospitals, and enforce the nation's antitrust laws to break up these giant monopolies in every sector, particularly media, healthcare, and finance. Pretty straightforward stuff that we can do. And we need to translate this into agenda. And frankly, these are the things that progressive Democrats, progressives across the board, have been pushing for for quite some time. And this is, you know, this is the direction FDR was taking us. This is the direction LBJ was taking us. And we hit this screeching halt in the 1980s. And so my call is for us to reverse Reaganism, reverse Reaganomics, 
and oh, there it is, and and uh, and bring us back, bring bring our American middle class back. Seems like a good idea to me. I you know I, I realize that conservatives you know for a long long time have blamed the middle class on a whole bunch of you know ills, but I say it's time to bring back the middle class. What say you? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And how can we most effectively message that to the rest of America? Democrats like the middle class. Republicans only like oligarchy. Carrie in St. George, Utah. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind today? I'm just trying to find out something about the Voting Rights Act. What is Schumer doing? Is he going to let it fail again? And if it does fail... We're not going to be in power anymore because the Republicans are just taking over everything. Yeah, I I suspect that he will not bring it to the floor for a second humiliation. Um, I and what I'm hearing, Kerry, is that there are behind the scenes negotiations going on, trying to come up with some sort of voting rights legislation that is. Sufficiently acceptable to Manchin. Keep in mind, Joe Manchin was the co-author of the Freedom to to Vote Act. So you know, it's it's not like he was refusing to change the filibuster. I mean, this all came down to the filibuster, right? It's not like he was refusing to change the filibuster just um, uh, you know uh, for the voting rights legislation. Although that's that's how it worked out. So okay. I don't I don't have an update for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, yeah, I what? tried to find something on Google. You I won't either. You won't. They're all they're all being very mum about it. And I think the probability of anything passing before this election is close to zero. My guess, though, is that what we're going to hear out of this election are a lot of press reports, a lot of news stories about people who were not allowed to vote, who were intimidated in their efforts to vote. Um, who, who, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, these, uh, what do you call them? Election. They, there's, there's this new scam going on for the Republicans. Election audits, you know, where they're they're literally going door to door, guys with guns and badges, even though they're they're their own guns and their phony badges, um, in, in mostly black neighborhoods. And, and trying to intimidate people, saying, oh, it shows here that you voted. Who'd you vote for? You know, I, I want to know if you're a, one of those voter fraud. And, and just basically trying to scare people enough that they won't go vote again, that they don't want to have another well, white guy with a gun show up on their DNC, front door. Do you think the DNC should maybe go after these? Uh, they are. They are suing them. And, in fact, it's a story I'm going to talk about a little later on in the program. They are suing right. them right now. There, there's, there's like six or seven of these groups now operating in, in five or six states, in virtually all the swing states, where you've got white people dressed basically as if they were cops, but they're not, um, you know, wearing phony badges that you can buy on, on the Internet with, with guns on their hips going into black neighborhoods and demanding to know how people voted and accusing them of voter fraud. And, I mean, it, 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 it's beyond terrible. It's, it's criminal. It's against the law. The, you know, the anti-Klan... Uh, Act of what was it, 1879? I think the Ku Klux Klan Act of it was the 1870s. I forget the year, 73, 79. That law specifically, the the whole purpose, the reason that law was written was because the Klan was intimidating black voters. It wasn't just lynching people and stuff like that. The Anti Klan Act was to allow black people to vote in the 1870s. And they've been using that law to sue. I've noticed that's, that. That's that's correct. That's what that's the law that the Democrats are using right now to sue these groups. In in um, yeah, there's one in Colorado, there's one in Arizona, there's one in Utah. 
I, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into it in a little more depth a little later on in the program. But, Kerry, I think you're absolutely right. It's a big deal. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Kerry. Good to hear from you. Stick around. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. A couple of quick stories here, or one quick story, and then I want to uh, share my riff about Judge Jackson with you. First off, the uh, truckers in the D.C. convoy are dropping like flies. It sounds like they're getting COVID. Uh, there, <laughs> Zachary Patrizio over the Daily Beast tweeted, Today in Hagerstown, more and more truckers with the People's Convoy are complaining about becoming sick with a bad cough. One streamer, OTR Survival, even, uh, evened up going to, even ended up going to urgent care and described the illness as like getting hit by a bus. It might not be COVID. It might be RSV. It might be the flu. There's apparently a nasty flu that's just starting to break out all across the country. Who knows? But uh, these poor, sad truckers, they're not happy people. Okay. Judge Brown, uh, or Judge Jackson, excuse me. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. She will be the second, second public defender to have ever served on the U.S. Supreme Court. And while I get it that there's a bunch of Republicans in the, uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the Judiciary Committee and in the Senate who are offended by the fact that she's a black woman and that President Biden said he was going to pick a black woman. In fact, uh, you know, Ted Cruz said that should be illegal. Uh, I, I get it that there are, you know, there's, there's some of these people who are just plain old flat out racist. And they're going to hate on her no matter what because she's black and because she's a woman, misogynist as well. But 
I think the thing that probably frightens or intimidates or, or uh, offends Republicans on the Judiciary Committee and in the Senate as a whole, even more than the fact that she's black and female. Now, I'll give you this. Some of them, that's front and center. But for many of them, it's the fact that she used to defend criminal clients. How dare she? The, the last person who defended criminal clients was also the first black man on the, on the court. That was Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, that was quite some time ago. Thurgood Marshall was, uh, it was on the court from, um, where did I put that? <laughs> there we go. Oh, hour one. Oh, he was on the court from 1967 to 1991. Um, and, and I think that this is, this is really what they're objecting to is that somebody might be bringing the defendant's point of view into Supreme Court deliberations. There are, as of uh, April of this year, the 318 former prosecutors, more than a third of all the 880 federal judges across the country, 234 lawyers who have represented the government in other cases, former criminal defense attorneys, only 76 of them, that's criminal defense, and that's only 7%, and public defenders, only 58, that's only 7% of all judges. And part of that is because Donald Trump appointed 10 times as many prosecutors as criminal defense attorneys. And uh, before Trump, it was a four to one ratio on the federal bench. Now it's about a 10 to one ratio. And Joe Biden has made this a, a priority, putting former criminal defense lawyers on in as judges. And this is a really good thing. A third of his nominations have been former public defenders, which is huge. Uh, e even Obama and Clinton didn't do that. So. I think that this is what they're most objecting to, and I think it's what we most need. We really do. Having the voice of the powerless, or somebody who understands the voice of the powerless on the court, I, I think it's just absolutely essential. Lindsey Graham is having a sad day, sort of like the truckers in DC. He went off on Judge Jackson's defense of one of her clients was a Guantanamo prisoner. You know, many of the people in Guantanamo have never been convicted. In fact, I'm pretty sure all of the people in, Gu in Guantanamo have never been convicted of a crime. Um, and several of them have been exonerated. We, we know for a fact that they're not guilty of anything. Uh, we're just like basically afraid to let them go for fear that they're pissed off now or something like that. And after she was questioned about this, uh, or he questioned her about this and in a way that was, you know, frankly, quite inappropriate, uh, Dick Durbin corrected the record. Dick Durbin, uh, the Democrat who is heading up the committee, and, and Durbin corrected the record, and Lindsey Graham just started screaming and going, I don't care if they all die, all 39 of them, I'd like And he got up and walked out. Good riddance, right? Good riddance. Anyhow, Gary in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, you had a great article this morning about taxing the morbidly rich to help the economy. But some people may not fully understand how taxing billionaires really spurs economic growth and helps us. And basically, when you make billionaires circulate their hoarded income by paying high taxes, that money goes to the U.S. Treasury then the U.S. Treasury can put that money back in circulation. 
paying it as wages to workers, building highways, bridges, dams, the space program, schools. And after that, workers spend those wages that they get on houses, cars, and appliances, creating more high-wage factory jobs. And then it's wash, rinse, and repeat. It's called the multiplier effect. It's a very powerful thing. And that's only half of it, Gary. That's only half of it. The other half is, and, and this is very much how America ran until Reagan started cutting that top tax rate. Um, and the other half of it is that prior to 1981, the majority of CEOs in the United States only earned 30 times what their employees do. Because, hey, if you're going to hit that $3 million a year ceiling in terms of income, where you suddenly find yourself in a 74% tax bracket, why bother? Just take the $3 million and take the rest of the money and keep it in the company and pay your employees better and invest in new products and, and research and development, things like that, you know, new marketing, expand your business, strengthen your business. And so that, you know, as, as CEO pay was restrained, worker pay increased over that 40-year period that, that we had New Deal economics. And, and, and thus we had this great middle class. So both of those things happened. And that was a very powerful factor. And those fat cats that kept getting more and more times the workers, they wouldn't spend nearly as much of their income as a low-wage or blue-collar worker would. That's right. Low-wage workers have to spend almost every extra buck they earn to survive, and that spending puts money back in circulation. By comparison, the average billionaire spends much less of each additional dollar of their income and spends less than 5% of their staggering riches each year. So when you put money into a worker's hands, he's going to spend it and spur the economy. You put it into a billionaire's hands, he'll hoard part of it. He'll put the rest in hedge funds and derivatives and risky uh, ventures that don't really create jobs, and that slows the economy down. The Kauffman Foundation did a study uh, several years ago about uh, uh, spurring the economy and job creation done by large Fortune 500 corporations. And what the Kauffman Foundation came up with is that the big Fortune 500 corporations had hardly created one net new job over 30 years, meaning that they'd laid off essentially as many as they had with new hires. And that essentially all job creation was created by small businesses, most of which weren't run by billionaires. Amen. And I'm going to have to do some research to find the Kauffman Foundation. Any, any clues on where I can find that, Gary? Because that sounds like a great well, resource. It, it's, it's the Ewing Kauffman Foundation. He was the owner of the Kansas City Royals baseball mm-hmm. team. And I don't have the link in front of me. I think it was done in the early 2000s. It was covering a 30-year period. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but if I locate it quickly, I'll, I'll post it on your Twitter page. It's great. Gary, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. And, and thank you for uh, bringing up the topic. Very well said. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, you wanted to talk about Hi, Judge Tom. Jackson's uh, hearings. What's up? Yes. Lindsey Graham is so melodramatic that it just, uh, oh, yeah. it's really just mind-boggling. But with Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, Tom, it is just so meaningful to black women and black little girls to see her. And it's also just as insulting to hear them imply that she's somehow soft on crime 
and she is not hard enough on, I guess, the sexual predators. It is insulting to see the Republican Party do this and senators. Um, I, I think, Tom, we have a Republican Party, <laughs> Republican leaders that are just hell-bent on destroying anybody or anything good in this country. And for me right now, they cannot be trusted as a party, as an institution. And these are private organizations. We need to remember that. The Republican Party, Democratic Party, these are private organizations. Yep. Nothing federal or public about them. And I think sometimes we forget that. Yep. Uh, I, I do think she will be uh, confirmed. But, gosh, I'm just thinking at what cost. And then I want to ask you two other things. Tom, well, quickly. Well, if I could, real I'm quick, sorry. Pam, you asked yes. at what cost. I'm getting the sense that the tide is turning here, that Americans are starting to figure out that the GOP is basically just running this racist shtick that, you know, went back to George Wallace, who was a Democrat, I mean, before the Civil Rights Act. And I think that they're hurting themselves, frankly, with many Americans. Obviously, they're ingratiating themselves with their white racist base. You know, we'll all stipulate that. But I think she's going to come out of this just fine. I certainly hope so. And, Tom, if the tide is turning, I think that should reveal itself in the vote. Yep. Because if the uh, Republican Party takes over the Congress, you know, I'm going to be very disturbed by that. But also what I wanted to ask you, regarding Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Tom, certainly her record stands for itself. But I, I just can't get over her hesitancy of not wanting to resign yeah. just to prevent Trump from having uh, that appointment. Yep. I don't know the reasoning behind that, but I think that hurt us a lot with the Supreme Court. So now we're having, you know, to, to feel the effects of that. So I, I'd just I like agree. you to comment on that. And then the other item, uh, Tom, when you talk about the wealthy people not wanting to pay taxes, here in uh, Chicago, Illinois, I don't know if you all heard, we had a business person who donated a lot of money to give people gas cards. And, um, of course, the definitely needed. The lines were just, you know, over, just overrun mm -hmm. with uh, people. But it's because people, wage earners, so-called middle class people, cannot afford time to fill up their tanks with yep. gas. Yep. And while I appreciate the efforts of this business person with his philanthropy, I'd also like him to talk to the gas station owners who price gouge. Tom, I don't hear enough talk. I hear it from you. I'm not hearing it enough about the price gouging. Yeah, and it's not just the gas station owners. I mean, the, the price of oil went down. It's back up again now today, but, but it went down substantially. But the price of gasoline didn't go down. Not at all. Yeah. Groceries yeah. aren't going down, and people are still hurting. Yeah. So the wealthy people, they want to help us with their philanthropy, but they don't want to pay taxes that would do much more for a longer uh a portion of time, and that would be more beneficial. I agree. And, and that's and what I'm hearing here. I, I agree. Spot on, Pam. And and thank you for all your comments. The the uh, the bottom line is that what is being done by philanthropy by rich people really should be government functions in in many cases. David in uh, North Miami Beach, Florida. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, y'all. Yeah, this is your eight dollar an hour man because that's all a, a college degree and more is worth sometimes. Yes. Mm. Uh, so while I agree with tax the rich, maybe modern monetary theory, but I, I want to throw um, 
I'm going to throw Rand Paul's words against him. He mocked the idea of a one-time payment. Let's give everyone $30,000. I say let's do it, but it, as a reverse war bond. Since Trump was able to divert defense money and Biden can get coins. Right. So how about we give every, every adult a $30,000 coin, maybe with an RFID chip, which they pay to a bank, but to prevent inflation, they have to put aside at least half to either repay debts or put a down payment to limit inflation. And that way, suddenly everyone has money in their pocket and they're not just throwing so money at... It, it, it's an interesting, you know, kind of guaranteed income. And, and to some extent, it's what happened in a much smaller way, of course, with the, uh, the child tax credit. And I get what you're saying, David. My, my preference would be just to eliminate student debt as a starting point and strengthen the right of workers to unionize. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Crazy alert for the day. This is nuts. This is genuinely nuts. A dog was dumped at a North Carolina dog shelter because its owners are convinced it's gay. Seriously. This, this poor dog, his name is Fezco, and he's a cute-looking dog, and he just he tried to hump another male dog. Well, I, you know, I've seen male dogs hump other male dogs my whole life. I mean, this is like, this is normal play. This is how dogs play. It's not uh, it doesn't mean the dog is gay, although it could be. I mean, maybe he is a gay dog. Over, according to Scientific American, over 1,500 animal species have been identified that have homosexual behavior. We used to have a pair of gay ducks. You know, I've, I've, we, we talked about them on the radio, Adam and Steve. They've lived on our back deck more, more often than not. Um, but, you know, whether the dog is gay or not, uh, taking, taking your dog to the pet shelter because he's gay is like, that, 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 that is like, you know, a whole nother level of homophobia, you know, and of weird, just plain old weird. Deborah in Chicago. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? 
Uh, thank you, thank you. And my um, fellow Chicagoan, um, Pam called in, and almost 99% of what she says, uh, she speaks for me, she articulates it well, so thank you, thank you for having her, thank you especially for having me. You spoke about Reagan, and my contention is that, yes, Reagan did what would be done away with the force when he stripped the uh, air traffic. You may have mentioned this. I, I, I apologize. The air traffic, uh, the pilots and all mm-hmm. of their unions, which gutted uh, the middle class. So we thank God that what you're saying, and I have called the president's line, asking that he see you and talk to you about as well as those in our community, black community, about the things that are happening to the poor. But my contention is that once Dr. King died, did that that legacy, that blueprint, like um, Atlanta. I don't know when Atlanta um, didn't, but their poor obviously were doing well. I have people that I know have left Chicago that went to Atlanta. They're doing great. Mm-hmm. The only difference, and Pam would have said this herself, she probably have said it many times on your show, we had a Democrat or pretended to be a Democrat, the former mayor that disinvested in the, the, the South and the West Sides, which was predominantly black. Of Chicago. So that Chicago, yeah. and that was Rahm Emanuel, who shouldn't be ambassador yeah. to Japan. That's horrible. Yeah, I am but not I a fan of Rahm Emanuel. I, I, I am with you, Deborah. Oh, I pray. I pray another time to talk about it. Thank you so much yeah. for accepting my call. Thank yeah. you. Thank okay. you. And Miss Louise. Thank staff, you. Thank, thank you, Deborah. Bye-bye. It's great to hear thank, from you. Thank Appreciate it. Brian in Minneapolis. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Good morning. Hey. In talking about the turning the United States into a massive rental area, mm-hmm. the suggestion I would have is that create two higher real estate tax brackets, both rural and urban, and you have resident absentee landlords. That's the highest, mm-hmm. the next highest bracket. And the absolute highest bracket are the absentee non-resident landlords. Oh, interesting. Or absentee non-citizen landlords, although you don't want to punish people who have have a green card but you know what i'm talking about are people who don't live in this in the in the united states but are investing here basically i that's a that's a great idea brian if somebody wants to live in you know i live in minnesota and we have an anti-corporate farming law here where corporations cannot own farmland now i don't know how they own they they do own smithfield foods here in minnesota yeah, but, but that's not farmland. An that's a meat processing law, operation. But they can't buy farmland. That's and when you think about it, why would a corporation want to own farmland? Nobody will farm the land cheaper than what a farmer will. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so, fascinating. I, I wonder if, if uh, establishing a different property tax bracket for uh, non-resident, you know, for non, non-citizen non-residents yeah. would be would be something that would have to go through a state legislature or whether a county could do it. I mean, most property taxes are, are county taxes or city taxes, aren't they? I'm, I'm not an expert on so. property taxes. I, you know, I know I pay them. <laughs> I have most of my yeah. life. Well, and I'm I, pretty sure I've I, always I, paid I'm, them to the city. I'm in the same boat. But, yeah, your local county boards and stuff levy the taxes. And I, and I think, I really believe that at least it falls within the jurisdiction of the state. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to authorize that, yeah, to create a category. 
That would be a fascinating conversation. Brian, thank you very much for that. That's, uh, I need to learn a little more about that. Thank you. Uh, appreciate the call, and thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Uh, we'll be back. I want to get into this uh, question of uh, wealthy countries having only 12 years to end all gas and oil production. This is an amazing report. Stick around. New research estimates that rich countries must end oil and gas production entirely by 2034. If I'm doing my math right, that's 12 years from now, in order to give the world a 50-50 chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the close of the century. This came from the UK-based Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. What does this mean? How could this be done? What is the state of uh, fossil fuel extraction around the world right now, and, and wh where do we go with this? What do we do with this? Colin Reese is on the line with us. He's a senior campaigner with Oil Change International and Oil Change U.S. Priceofoil.org is the website. Colin Reese, R-E-E-S, is his Twitter handle, or at Price of Oil. Colin, great to have you again. Tell us about this report and what it, first of all, what it tells us, and secondly, what it means we need to be doing. Thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be here. And I think you you laid it out pretty well. It tells us that we are not on track to meet our climate goals, essentially, in terms of phasing out extraction. And it's specifically what this one tells us is that in order to keep this process as equitable as possible, uh, to make sure that we have a just transition for as many people as possible, rich countries need to act first and fastest. Uh, to phase out fossil fuel extraction as well as fossil fuel use. Is that because uh, we, rich countries are in a, in a better position to do so? They can afford things like solar panels and windmills, or is it because rich countries are the largest consumers and, and producers of fossil fuels, or both? It's, it's both of those things, yeah. So kind of two pieces there. One, rich countries are, are better positioned to do this. They are, they are by definition richer, so they have more resources for this transition. Not only do they need to be phasing out their own, but they need to be sending a lot of uh, aid, grants, uh, assistance to other countries to help them phase out as well. And then the second piece is that we are actually not, in, in a rich country like the United States, we're not nearly as dependent on fossil fuels uh, for the economy as many countries. Uh, you look at a country in the global south, a country like Angola in Africa, uh, we also need to phase out extraction in Angola, but Angola right now gets a, a large percentage of its country's entire GDP from fossil fuel extraction. That's not true in the US, despite okay. what big oil would let have you believe. Fossil fuels are a vanishingly small part of our economy. We absolutely need to take care of the workers and the people who are caught up in that small piece, but it's not a huge sector of our business, and it's not something that we're going to have huge disruption from phasing out. It seems to me, Colin, that um, the idea of ending fossil fuel extraction altogether in the United States, for example, um, you know, one of the largest producers of fossil fuels in the world, by 2034, in, in 12 years, uh, has a zero probability of happening. Um, can you speak to that? I think it's pretty low. I think what we've also seen is that when politics shift, they can shift quickly. Uh, we know that we can mobilize very quickly. We've seen that in times of war in the past. We're seeing that uh, in relation to the crisis in Ukraine and Russia's invasion at the moment. Uh, this is something where really it's a question of political will. 
12 years is more than enough time from a physical standpoint to make sure that we wind down this infrastructure. The key piece that does need to happen almost immediately is to stop building out new infrastructure, to stop drilling new wells, to stop pouring more fossil fuel subsidies and public money into new projects. That's what the industry is pushing right now, what big oil and gas are pushing for. And so that's the biggest thing to resist in this moment is stopping the expansion. If we actually just let uh, extraction in all current wells and everything they're already drilling, uh, if we let that phase out naturally, if we kind of used up all the oil in those wells, et cetera, uh, I think we'd still have to shut it down just a little bit early, but it would actually align relatively well with that path line over the next 12 years. I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert on this, that most of our oil consumption in the United States is going to home heating, building heating, and transportation. Um, and and those are things that are very amenable to electrification, to you know, between heat pumps and electric vehicles. And that if we really wanted to do this, you know, we'd need to throw like wartime resources into it. A, a couple of trillion dollars thrown in right now spent over the next 12 years might move us in that direction. Is that, first of all, is that the level of, of response that we would need? And have I correctly identified a, a target area for it? And, and secondly, you know, the, the Biden administration proposed a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion uh, in their Build Back Better legislation to move us in this direction. And it got defeated by every Republican in the United States Senate, plus Kirsten Sinema, plus Joe Manchin. Where do we go from here? Great question, Tom. Uh, this is something you're absolutely right. Building buildings and, and our homes and transportation, our vehicle system for the most part, are indeed the, the majority of our oil consumption, a lot of our fossil fuel use. And as you say, they can be very easily electrified. Uh, this is going to require a massive investment. I don't have figures around, but those, that sounds about right. I mean, I think hundreds of billions up to trillions of dollars in this in this next critical period. Every year that we wait, it gets sort of exponentially more difficult. So that's why we think it's such an incredibly important moment for President Biden to be seizing the moment. We do need congressional action. Hopefully, uh, the current energy crisis spurs a bit of congressional action, but there's also a lot that Biden can do on his own uh, and to use his executive powers. There's the Defense Production Act. Uh, he can mobilize the entire resources of the federal government towards building out clean energy, towards technology, towards electric vehicle technology and weatherization and home efficiency technology. How does he do These that without, without, allocated, without funds being allocated by Congress? Yeah, so you have government procurement budgets, which is several hundred, like tens of billions of dollars a year that he actually does have at his disposal here, right. and then he needs to request more from Congress. So you can get a you can get a jump start on this. You can start to shift existing manufacturing, is a lot of what it is, and then then hopefully the market uh, picks it up and we can kind of mobilize across the economy. But that initial sort of spark and leadership is what we need from the Biden administration right now, as well as of course more action from Congress, as you mentioned. Fossil fuel industry has bought out a lot of our current Congress on on both sides of the aisle. In some cases, I think we need tremendous public pressure, and we also need new new members of Congress. We need to yeah. uh, make sure that the Republicans don't get control in November, and uh, and that's definitely one of the things that needs to happen. We're talking with Colin Reese, a senior campaigner with uh, Oil Change International and Oil Change US, uh, PriceofOil.org. Um, Colin, a, a few years back. Uh, I was uh, with a film crew in Norway. We were working on a, a movie called Ice on Fire that uh, Leo DiCaprio put together. And we were talking with a whole bunch of Norwegian scientists and Norwegian politicians 
um, uh, you know, about the, about the situation. And the one thing that seemed to make them a little uncomfortable uh, when I brought it up was the discussion of the fact that, you know, a lot of Norway's wealth, in fact, arguably the majority of Norway's wealth, comes from their, their oil, offshore oil platforms. I mean, they, they've got huge oil reserves, and they've built up this huge sovereign wealth fund. Uh, how are, and, and they're a wealthy country, too, relatively speaking. Um, I mean, it's a small population, but uh, a wealthy population. How do how are the other countries of the world that are oil producers? And I don't know, you know, what other countries that are democracies produce oil at that level. Um, how are they responding to this? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I guess we can talk about whether you consider the U.S. a democracy, but yeah. <laughs> we've seen. Uh, Differing mobilizations, but a lot of people responding in, I think, positive ways so far. We've seen really positive signs from Germany in Europe uh, and actually pretty positive signs from the Biden administration, resisting big oil's call for massive investment, continued and expansion of drill, baby, drill, like that sort of narrative. Mm -hmm. I think one, one, one point I want to make really quickly, Tom, here is that we talk a lot about investment in renewables. Absolutely, we need that. But I think it's, it's telling that we don't... Uh, actually talk about investment in fossil fuels the same way. We are pouring tens of billions of dollars a year, hundreds of billions of dollars a year at the global level uh, from advanced economies into propping up the fossil fuel industry, into destroying the planet and lining the pockets of big oil CEOs. Uh, a lot of what needed is just to shift those subsidies into the renewable sector. Absolutely, it's investment in subsidies, but we are currently doing it at a very large scale. We're just doing it for the fossil fuel yeah, industry. Yeah, I understand the worldwide, the, the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry run around $600 billion a year. It's over $100 billion a year in the United States. Are those numbers more or less right? Yeah, it depends on exactly how you how you count them there, but somewhere between tens of billions and hundreds of billions yeah, in the U.S. And, and not to mention, you know, the entire U.S. Navy protecting shipping lines and, and, and things like that. There's a lot to it. Priceofoil.org is the website. Colin Reese, the senior campaigner with Oil Change International, uh, at Colin Reese on Twitter or at Price of Oil. Colin, thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to talk. Thank you. Back at you. Good talk with you, too. We'll continue our conversations on this. And also, I got to tell you about these uh, pro-Trump groups that are going armed door-to-door -door in black neighborhoods about voting. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is like voter intimidation on steroids. I, I got to tell you about this right after the break. Stick around. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So a lot to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And it looks like there may be a couple of uh, a couple of the suburbs of Kiev that the Russians had taken where now they're being circled and cut off from their supply lines. We'll see how that plays out. There's a, another city, though, in Ukraine. Forgive me for not remembering the name. It starts with a K, and, uh, but it's not Kharkiv, where the Russians have seized the entire city. And they are now going door to door, rounding up people who have protested against the Russians or who were members of the of the government or members of the military. 
And God only knows what they're going to be doing to them. If they're executing them or putting them in concentration camps or taking them as prisoners, um, this, is, this war has gotten insanely ugly. So number one, we just talked about what's going on with climate change in the United States. And then I wanted to share this just absolutely shocking story with you. Uh, the U.S. Election Integrity Plan is a program that was put together by a former Trump strategist uh, or an ally of Steve Bannon, the former Trump strategist, and a, a guy who works with uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. His name is Sean Smith. And they're sending armed white people door to door in black neighborhoods, questioning people about how they voted and taking pictures of them and their homes. The NAACP, the League of Women Voters, and Mia Familia Vota, a, a Latino rights, uh, uh, voting rights organization, are all collectively suing this organization, saying that this, they're calling it a voter intimidation campaign, saying that it not only violates the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but also violates the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. The Ku Klux Klan Act was actually passed not to stop lynchings, but to stop the Klan from preventing black people from voting in 18 frigging 71. It wasn't until 1876 that Reconstruction was ended with the, with the Hayes-Tillman um, election where the way that Congress got it, well, it's a whole long story, but that, that was when basically uh, they stabbed African-Americans in the back and ended Reconstruction. That was 1876. This was 1871. The, the Congress passed a law to stop the Klan from preventing black people from voting. And what they're saying, what the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, and Mia Familia Vota is saying, is that these, these programs that are being conducted in coordination with the Republican Party, in some cases, in some cases independently, that these programs where they're sending armed white people, in many cases wearing badges that they bought on the internet, into black neighborhoods, you see, voting records are public. Right? You, can, you can get the public record that shows the names and addresses of all the registered Democrats, for example, in a particular area. You go door to door and you say, uh, did you vote in the last election? Says here you did. I'm just checking. So I know, that you, I know who you are. I know where you live. And I know that you voted. And we're going to take a picture of your house. And I'm going to take a picture of you. And hey, have you noticed this gun on my hip? You might want to think twice about voting next time, you know? Now, they typically don't say that last sentence. But you think people don't hear that? The lawsuit cites uh, the county and local organizing playbook used by this group, uh, the U.S. Election Integrity Plan, that, according to the lawsuit, prompted an alert from the Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, who warned voters to report harassment and threats to local law enforcement or the Justice Department. This is from the lawsuit. Defendants' objectives are clear by planning to, threatening to, and actually deploying armed agents to knock on doors throughout the state of Colorado. USEIP is engaged in voter intimidation, the lawsuit says. USEIP's public-facing actions are a clear signal to Colorado voters, especially voters of color, that to vote in an upcoming election means facing interrogation by potentially armed and threatening USEIP agents at their doorstep thereafter. Sometimes armed and donning badges to represent an appearance of government officiality U.S. EIP agents interrogate voters about their addresses, whether they participated in the 2020 election, and if so, how they cast their vote. It is reported that multiple agents have claimed to be from the county 
and have, without any evidence, falsely accused the residents of casting fraudulent ballots. Free speech for people, the uh, senior counsel, uh, Courtney Hostetler, says, uh, free and fair elections can only occur when people know that they are safe, they, they are able to safely vote without fear of reprisal or intimidation. Um, they're also, the U.S. EIP, according to this lawsuit, is also working with the Colorado Republican Party on its, quote, election integrity operations, according to the Times Recorder. Heidi Ganahl, the leading Republican candidate for Colorado governor, promoted the group during a recent event, saying that they're doing great things. The group's website says it plans to expand to other states, including Arizona, Georgia, and New Hampshire. His training materials are already being used by conspiracy theorists in Utah who call themselves the Utah Voter Verification Project, according to the Salt Lake Tribune. This is all by Igor Dirish over at Salon.com. Uh, Pro-Trump groups sent armed members door-to-door -door in Colorado to intimidate voters. It doesn't get lower than this. Although this is nothing new. This is what William Rehnquist was doing, or a variation on it, back in 1964 in Arizona. And it turned him into a Republican superstar. To the Tom Hartman program. In fact, after Rehnquist spent several years with Operation Eagle Eye in Arizona intimidating black and Hispanic voters, they put him on the Supreme Court as the Chief Justice. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Well, I want to talk about a couple of things real quick. The first of which is the uh, Senate hearings going on right now at the Judiciary Committee for uh, Justice Jackson. I do want to remind people that one of the greatest legal minds in American history uh, we lost this year on January 7th. Her name was Lonnie Guineer. She was a black woman whose nomination for attorney general was pulled in a very cowardly way, I might add, by Bill Clinton. And I suspect black women that have gone before the Senate Judiciary Committee, including Anita Hill, have not been treated very well in the past. I'm very interested in seeing how this manifests itself with Judge Jackson. Given her judicial temperament, I'm not a big fan of Judge Jackson, but I can tell you that historically, black women that have been before the Senate Judiciary Committee have not been treated very well. Yeah. So that's something to keep an eye on. I also wanted to talk about uh, something that you have uh, mentioned, Tom, uh, several times over the last few weeks, which I absolutely agree with, by the way, and that's being lied into wars, lied into Vietnam, lied into Iraq, and one could even say lied into Afghanistan. Yep. But here's the thing, Tom. We should know if they're lying to us. We, if we hold the power, we should hold them to account. So I think that there's some responsibility that, and particularly, we keep buying the same lie over and over. Yeah. So I wanted to say that. And finally, there are no black oligarchs and no black fascists. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I, th I think there's only two black billionaires in the United States. You know, one is Oprah and the other is a, a guy who I believe runs a hedge fund. I could be wrong. Oprah, I suppose, is politically active, but, you know, in a fairly benign way. You know, she's, exactly. she's not setting up think tanks all over the country and, and you know, pushing Supreme Court justices onto the court and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, yeah, ex excellent, excellent points. You also wanted to uh, note that the U.S. has ban used banned weapons. I did. Um, Tom, there's something um, the United States uh, invented cluster munitions. Right. The United States. Um, we manufactured uh, them in the Ohio. Exactly. Um, the United States used depleted uranium munitions very deadly and for a long time in Iraq right. and, and by the international community. Napalm, which, which was used widely in Vietnam, 
uh, and my father suffered from some of those effects, uh, was one of the greatest war crimes in history. And lastly, the United States still has in its arsenal something called Bouncing Betty's, which is a mine, which which you step on it, it's spring-loaded, it jumps up five feet just so it can blow your head off. Well, Where's the accountability in an international uh, criminal court for the yeah. U.S.? That's what I want to know. I, I'm, I'm with you, Kenyatta. Kenyatta, thanks a lot for the call. It's always great to hear from you. Jason in uh, Chicago watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I appreciate you taking my call. I just wanted to get your opinion on something regarding those lawsuits regarding the white guys, the armed white guys going to people's homes, pretending to be law enforcement and then, you know, intimidating them into perhaps not voting. The news here is only the lawsuits, right? We've known that that was happening for some time, like that knowledge that they were doing this has been out there. Um, and it's great that these organizations are issuing these lawsuits, but I would have been under the impression that the Department of Justice should have been first in line. In I going agree with you. People. I agree with you, Jason. I'm not a, an attorney and I'm certainly not an election law attorney, but this seems fairly simple and straightforward. It's, uh, you know, voter intimidation should be illegal in the United States. Yeah, so I'm wondering just, just what your opinion on why aren't they? Like, where's Garland in all of this? Why isn't he going after these people? Do you have any thoughts? Generally speaking, and I say this with great pain, generally speaking, Democratic administrations are reluctant to play hardball with Republicans. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. you know, we saw this in a big way with Clinton. We saw this in a big way with Obama. And we're seeing it, I think, again with Biden, that they, they are afraid of the, the blowback, the pushback, the freak out, the, the media circus. They'd rather just take the path of least resistance, keep their heads down and try and get good stuff done rather than fight the wars, the culture wars. And I frankly think right. they, should, they should be fighting the culture wars. In fact, I think we should be aggressively taking these people on. But, you know, I don't run the, the Biden White House. Sadly, yeah. Or the yeah, and, but just a final thought: it, it is the. It seems to me like everything Republicans do is political, but Democrats are afraid of being called political, I so agree. they don't want to do anything political. So I we're agree. essentially feckless. I agree. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you, Thank Jason. You, Thank you, Michelle in Chicago. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind today? Perfect. I was just calling to tell people to keep their masks on, whatever the mandate. I have a sister who's a physician, and her friend that got together couple of weeks ago and now they're very sick they have negative covid tests oh i bet they have the, the flu symptoms. maybe they have the flu but there's there's a on. nasty flu going around and then there's this respiratory synactical virus rsv i'm sure i'm mispronouncing it but it's also it'll kick your butt because louise had something like that a couple of weeks ago and we're pretty sure we got it from our grandson and uh, it right. wa definitely wasn't covid but it took her down for yeah. several days so michelle thanks for the okay. warning appreciate it great to hear from you and thank you for being with us today we'll be back tomorrow same time same place in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport it requires all of us or it doesn't work so get out there, get active, tag your end. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself, the people around you, and pray for peace in the world. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.